The story of Nehemiah is a story of rebuilding. We've been in this for uh, a month now uh, and been examining the concept of rebuilding and renewal. Uh, That story isn't just about physical rebuilding. That's one of the things that we've, we've been talking about. Yes, it included that. They had to rebuild the walls so that the city could be protected. Uh, but it is also a story about, and more importantly, a story about spiritual renewal uh, and renewal of the community of people into the kind of people, the kind of community that God desires, what it is that he desires for his people and how he's going to use that for his glory. God's desire is for his people to be a community of love and care because a community of love and care, uh, when living for God's glory, can point the lost and hurting world to the God of love and care, right? It's uh, through love that we can demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? We can speak the good news of the gospel of people, but it's when we are loving, we demonstrate the gospel uh, to a watching world. Today's sermon addresses care. Uh, It centers around some social justice issues that were happening in Jerusalem uh, and Nehemiah with God's leading, is calling the people back into the kind of community that he desired them to be, that God desired them to be. Uh, It was kind of rebuilding them into a people of love and care for one another. So turn with me to Nehemiah 5, and that's where our sermon is titled, Rebuilding a Community of Love. Rebuilding a Community of Love. Nehemiah 5 1 through 15, there was widespread outcry from the people and their wives against the Jewish, their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters, are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, vineyards, and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children, just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. After seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials, saying to them, Each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, We have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who are sold to foreigners. But now you sell your own countrymen and we have to buy them back. They remained silent and could not say a word. Then I said, What you are doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? And not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies. Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Please, let us stop charging this interest. 
Return the fields, their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and their houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and fresh oil that you have been assessing them. They responded, We will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. So I summoned the priests and made everyone take an oath to do this. I also shook the folds of my robe and said, May God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. The whole assembly said, Amen, and they praised the, the, they praised the Lord. Then the people did as they had promised. Furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until his 32nd year, 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people, taking from them food and wine as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people, but because of the fear of God, I didn't do this. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of this wall, and all my subordinates were gathered there for the, for the work. We didn't buy any land. There were 150 Jews and officials, as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every ten days, but I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden on the people was so heavy. Remember me favorably, my God, for all that I have done for this people. Let's pray. Father, your word is good and true, and we thank you for it. Uh, we pray that you open our hearts and minds to these truths. I would pray that uh, the text today uh, can challenge us to consider uh, the kind of people that you desire us to be, the kind of love that you desire us to exhibit here amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ. Shape us into that people, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So our central truth that we'll look at today is our loving God calls us into a community of love. Our loving God calls us into a community of love. Scripture teaches us God is love. Uh, he calls us to be a people of love so that we can be a light to the lost world. The lost and hurting world can experience the love of God when his people love and of course, Jesus taught us that everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The community that God desires in his people, the community that God desires for Dogwood Church is to be a community of love. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter 5. Uh, and see the way that God is calling his people to be a people of love and care, and see what that can demonstrate to us of what it is that God desires for us 
here at Dogwood Church, what it is that we should pursue as we pursue this kind of loving community that God is working in us. The first truth for us is this. A community of love must listen to each other's cries. A community of love must listen to each other's cries. Verses 1 through 6. There was widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters, are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, vineyards, and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. The people are crying out about abuses in the land. Abuses that came from their own people. This was not the abuses that come from the outsiders. Those happen, but the chapter 5 is addressing issues that were coming from inside, the way people were treating one another, taking advantage of one another. It said they were crying out against their Jewish countrymen. They were not all demonstrating care for one another. Instead, they were seeking their own benefit. This seems to be a, most likely a class issue uh, where the wealthy were able to continue to take care of themselves and then uh, recognizing the needs of the people in the lower class uh, they were lending to them with the thoughts of what, this, what they could benefit from that. They're taking an interest from them. They're buying up land so that they can have more resources. They're, instead of caring for one another in their needs, they are thinking, how can I benefit here? And so here's the impact on their lives. They've got lots of different statements uh, one of the issues is there's limited food. We have a, a large family. We need grain to eat, is what the first group says. Uh, it seems like one they're having to they're uh, you know having to sell off rights to some of their land, but also with the work stopping out in the fields so that they can work faithfully on the wall, they're not able to work in the fields and get food so that their family can be taken care of. So the first group is saying, we don't have food. We need food or we're not going to be able to continue on. Uh, there's also issues of taxes that are a part of the hardship. Uh, and all of that is going to lead to essentially people selling off rights to their land, selling off rights to their fields and their their vineyards and their grain and things like that, just to get by. And that is going to overburden the people as that time goes on and on. The, the struggles are getting harder and harder for them. And the lower class is saying, we're just like our countrymen, 
And yet, we're in this position where we're having to consider selling our children into slavery. A form of indentured servanthood, not the the type of chattel slavery that we think of, uh, but a a form of indentured slavery where uh, children are being sold off to other people to work for them, to to pay off debts. And so, all of these issues are going on, and it's happening because there is a lack of love and care from amongst the people in the community. The Jewish countrymen are not loving and caring for one another as they should. So how does Nehemiah deal with that? Well, the first thing is he actually listened and paid attention to the needs, paid attention to what the issues were. He heard their cries and let that motivate him to respond appropriately. He paid attention to what was their heartaches. These five verses are recorded here because Nehemiah heard what the people were crying about, what their struggle was. And for us in the church, the reality, for us in our culture, that's not just a church thing, It's in our culture a lot of times. We aren't good always about paying attention to the cries of others. People who are hurting. People who are struggling. People whose hearts have been broken. We aren't good about that. We ask the question, hey, how are you doing? And then... When someone's honest, sometimes they're like, oh, I didn't know they were going to tell me all of that, right? That's a temptation for us to to be kind of dismissive and not listen really and really care about what's going on in each other's lives. We all can get into that habit, right? And so God's desire is for us to be a people of care and love, people that actually hear what's going on in people's lives and And care for them. Care about what's happening. Let that motivate us to to ensure that they are loved and cared for. So, for us, I think what we see here with Nehemiah, it's it's a helpful reminder. Let's hear what people are experiencing and let's actually care about that. Nehemiah, when he heard of their heartaches... It enraged him, a godly anger, right? This isn't okay that this is happening. And so he was bothered by this and was willing to take action. So when our brothers and sisters are hurting, let's pay attention to what's happening. Let's listen to and actually hear what it is they're saying that they're struggling with, what what their heartaches are, whatever the heartache, whatever the abuse, whatever the need, let's be a people who are close enough to one another where we can hear the heartaches. And not just to hear them, but in order to be able to respond lovingly like our God desires us to be. The second truth is this, a community of love must confront injustice. A community of love must confront injustice. We talked about this surprisingly, and uh, this happens often. I've noticed it a lot lately, Chris. 
uh, in Sunday school, uh, we have overlapping themes in completely different studies. Uh, but we talked about confronting justice and talked about what the heart behind that needs to be. Uh, and kindness being important, but willing to stand up. And so here we see from Nehemiah that a loving response is a response that confronts injustice. Verses 7 through 11. We and our children, I'm sorry, that's verse 5. Verse 7, after seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials, saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners, but now you sell your own countrymen and we have to buy them back. They remained silent and could not say a word. Then I said, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Please let us stop charging this interest. Return their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money. Grain, new wine, and fresh oil that you have been assessing them. Nehemiah doesn't just dismiss the issue as, well, that maybe someone else will step up and deal with this. Nehemiah doesn't dismiss this as a problem. It's like, well, maybe they're just being a little overdramatic. Maybe it's not that bad. Uh, Nehemiah actually takes action confronting the injustice. He went to the leaders who were doing this and he confronted them in love, but firmly confronting them. He said, what you're doing is wrong. This isn't okay. You're charging interest to your own countrymen. Now, this is where knowledge of the law is helpful for us. The Old Testament tells the Israelites, you are not allowed to charge interest to one of your fellow countrymen. It's, it's prohibited for you to lend to one of your brothers in this land with the intent of, I'm going to benefit from this. I'm going to earn something off of this. Yes, you care for them, but you don't care for them with the thought of, this is how I will profit here. And so he calls them out. You're breaking God's law. God's law tells us you cannot do this and you are charging them interest. In addition to that, the, uh, the law had instructions that the Israelites were not to be sold into slavery. No matter what the debt was, you, it was never okay to say, okay, well, you owe me this much money, and since you can't pay it back, then you're going to have to sell one of your family members into slavery so that I can receive payment. That was against God's law. And yet they were doing this to their own people. And so Nehemiah confronts them. He says, this is wrong. Uh, you can't do this. 
And God's desire is that we confront injustice when we see it, right? We stand up for what is right and good. In Isaiah chapter 1, we read these words, verse 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Now, when we talk about confronting injustice, it's important that you understand our disposition is not to be walking around in our church or just in Christian culture in general and looking for anything and everything that we can criticize people about. Our That's not our role to just go around and think, and you're doing this, and you're doing this, and you're doing this. That's not what we're talking about. But when an injustice has taken place, when a brother or sister has sinned against another, the appropriate thing in love, that's just how we actually demonstrate care. And Scripture does give us some instruction on what that should look like. The appropriate thing is to go to them and to address, to confront the injustice, to confront the sin. And so, when injustice is taking place, let's care about it. Because God is a God that cares about it. God is a God of justice always. And He cares when injustice is taking place. And He wants His people to love one another in the same way and to care about justice And let's be bold enough in love, in kindness, in gentleness, but bold enough to say, as Nehemiah said, what you're doing is not right. This is not God's desire for His people. When we live like that, God works in us. God restores us into the people that He wants us to be. Again, not just trying to be critical of everyone and everything that they're doing, but standing up for what is right when we see it. The third thing is this. A community of love must repent when necessary. A community of love must repent when necessary. Verses 12 through 13. They responded, we will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. So I summoned the priest and made everyone take an oath to do this. I also shook the folds of my robe and said, may God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. The whole assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord, and then the people did as they had promised. Here, after being confronted lovingly but firmly from Nehemiah, hey, this is not right. The people responded and agreed, we will right these wrongs. We will correct these issues. Uh, They're going to give back to the people what was theirs, and they're not going to require a, pay, a future payment on that. 
and they make a commitment to God. We're going to set things right. That's the idea of repentance is we're going to turn from what we're doing and we're going to pursue what is right. We're going to pursue what God desires from us. And so Nehemiah, this seems like a kind of bold statement here of what he's saying, but Nehemiah wants to uh, give a visual representation to them about how serious this is. And so he takes his robe and shakes it out. Robes of that day had folds sewn into them, essentially like we have pockets. Uh, And you would put things of importance in them. And so to shake out his robe, he's emptying out the pockets inside of the folds of his robe. And he's saying, if... For those who've said, we're going to right the wrong, if they truly don't repent, then God's judgment come upon them. May they be shaken out, essentially. And that seems harsh, but the issue at hand is an important issue. We, if you're committing to repentance and turning back to God, we have to take that seriously. So... A community of love must repent when necessary. Repentance is a turning away from an action, a sin. And here it included making things right. It wasn't just a commitment of like, okay, we won't take advantage of them again in the future. That was part of it. But it was also, we will restore to them what was taken from them. We will give them back what was theirs. I was thinking about this. The challenge for us when we read this, most of us, and this is not to say that you can't financially take advantage of a brother or sister in Christ. That happens, certainly. But this type of situation isn't typical for us in our culture, in our church, where we would be taking advantage of someone's financial burden in order to benefit ourselves. So I was thinking... How does that fit with us? And what does the Lord have for us? We may not have wronged a brother or sister in this way. But we do sin against one another. This room is full of sinners. Every single one of us. And sometimes that sin is against one another. Sometimes we sin intentionally against one another. Sometimes we unintentionally sin against one another. And what God's word has for us today is when we have sinned against one another, the appropriate thing to do is to repent. It's to turn from that. And if at all possible, to make things right from that in any way that we can. So yeah, we may not have taken advantage of someone financially, but have we torn down someone's reputation? Gossip is one of the most common and most destructive things that happens in a church. It happens in almost all churches. It's one of our Uh, respectable sins will tear each other down in little ways, destroy reputations, 
Maybe that's a way for us to think through, what are some sins like that that I might be committing against one another? And let's commit to turning from that. That's not God's desire. Let's turn towards healthiness in our church, wholeness in our church. Let's turn towards the kind of love that God has called us to. God's desire is that we would do that. And so if you've know you've wronged someone in the church, let's take steps to make that right. Let's take steps to honor God and say, I, I shouldn't have done this, and I want to make things right, and I want to, to commit to not doing that again. God will restore us in beautiful ways if we're willing to do that. The last thing we have from this text is this. A community of love must exhibit selfless living. A community of love must exhibit selfless living. Nehemiah models this kind of selfless love. Nehemiah models the kind of love that says, I, like, I'm going to ensure that they're having what is the, what's best for them, that they're receiving good here. I'm not in this for myself. He kind of already referenced that once when he was rebuking the people who were taking advantage of one another. He said, I'm lending to them also. And what he was meaning is it's a right to care for them and to lend to them and make sure that they have food and make sure that they're taken care of. But we don't do that for our benefit. Nehemiah wasn't charging them interest. He was lending generously to make sure that his countrymen were cared for. And so here we're going to see in these final verses kind of a contrast of the people who've been taking advantage of their own countrymen and a contrast of the previous governors of the land and how Nehemiah is going to uh, live for these people. And it is a selfless living So, 14 through 19. Furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until his 32nd year, 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people taking from them food and wine and as well a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people. But because of the fear of God, I didn't do this. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of this wall, and my subordinates were gathered there for the work. We didn't buy any land. There were 150 Jews and officials, as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every ten days. But I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden on the people was so heavy. Remember me favorably, my God, for all that I have done for this people. So Nehemiah had become the governor under King Artaxerxes. And that granted him certain rights. As the governor of the land, he could demand things from the people to ensure that he is taken care of while he is their leader. That included food allotments. 
and wine allotments that he could demand from the people. You have to give me these things because I'm your ruler. That included a tax that he as the governor could impose on the people that was beyond the king's tax. He had that right to do that. And the people before Nehemiah, he says, that's how they used their position, was to benefit themselves. That's how they ruled this land was, what can I get out of this? And he's going to live in contrast to that. He's serving, thinking, what can I give to these people? How can I lighten the load for these people? How can I ensure their good and their well-being? Nehemiah would not look at his position and use that to benefit himself. And why? He says, because of the fear of God. He knew that God had put him in that position to actually care for the people. And he wanted the whole community to be a community of love and care. And so, out of fear of God, out of respect for who God was, and what God expected of him, Nehemiah would not abuse his position. Nehemiah wouldn't even use his position. So some of the previous leaders abused the position for their good. All of them had certain rights. Nehemiah had those rights and he wouldn't use those. He wouldn't take advantage of those because he knew the people are already too burdened. He was there to care for them. He said, me and my subordinates... We didn't buy up land. We didn't come here thinking, oh, wow, everybody's struggling financially. Let's take advantage of that and exploit them. And we didn't try to get more food from the people. He paid for it out of his own pocket. Yes, he had to feed 150 plus people daily. He wouldn't do that at the expense of the people because they were already too burdened. That was a act of selflessness, right? He was living his life selflessly. Instead of thinking of himself, he was thinking of the good of others. He set aside what was rightfully his in order to care for his people. And this is one of the ways Nehemiah points us to our Savior, points us to Jesus, right? Jesus set aside things that were rightfully his. Comforts that were rightfully his. To take on the form of a man. Take on flesh. And endure horrific things in order to rescue us. Christ was selfless. Lived his life for our good. And so Nehemiah here in this selfless living is pointing us ahead to Jesus, the Savior that's to come. Paul talks about this, the selfless living when he calls the Philippians to to care about one another more than they care about themselves. And he makes that connection. This is how Jesus was towards us. Consider how Jesus lived 
And so in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Why should we live selflessly? Why should we live not out of selfish ambition, thinking, what can I get out of this? Why should we live considering others as more important than ourselves? Because that's how Jesus lived. That's how our Savior was towards each and every one of us. That's how our Savior is towards His church. That's what Jesus did in order to rescue us. And when we live that way, when we are selfless and say, I'm going to live for their good, not for my benefit. When we live that way for God's glory, it points others to the loving God. It points others to the selfless Savior who came to rescue them and give them hope. So... For us, let's continue to pursue loving one another in selfless living. Now, Paul, Paul talks about that. I think it's to the Thessalonians. Paul talks about, like, hey, you're already doing these things. I want to encourage you to do them all the more, right? And so you may be thinking, well, we're a loving church. And the encouragement is do it all the more. Continue in that. Run after that because that's what our Savior did for us. So let's consider others. Let's count others as more important than one, one another. I'm sorry. Let's count others as more important than ourselves. Uh, let's interact with one another with that kind of selfless love that says, I'm here for their good. I'll be poured out for their benefit. Let's ask God to continue to shape us into that kind of loving community. Because we know that's what He desires for us. It's for us to continue to grow all the more in how we love and interact with one another. That is attractive to a hurting world. It points others to Jesus. So our God has loved us with a costly love. And he's called us into a community of love. And because of the love that he's lavished on us over and over again, uh, let's be a people that pursues love for one another. Let's be a people that hears the cries of one another when we're struggling and comes alongside to care for one another. Let's be a people who confronts injustice when it's necessary. Let's be a people of repentance because we do things wrong to one another. And so let's own it and pursue restoration and healing when it's needed. 
And let's be a people that acts selflessly for the good of one another. Let's pursue that for God's glory. Let's pursue that. That's the kind of community that every one of us longs for. When you've had those relationships, whether it's in your family, in your church, or other things, where love, real love, is demonstrated, it is such a refreshing thing, right? So we all long for that. It's what God created us for. It's what He wants to rebuild in us and continue to build more and more in each of us as He prepares to work through us for His glory. Let's pray. God, You are so good and faithful. And You are love. The perfect expression of love. And so, continue to shape us into the kind of loving people that You desire us to be the way that we love one another and the way that we love this lost and hurting world. Through your Spirit, God, shape us, form us into the image of Christ and use us for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.